Our Father, we thank you for your work here in this last week, even thinking about what was taking place here right in this room, that right now it looks like a normal sanctuary, but Lord, this last week it certainly was transformed. And we thank you for all the children who are involved, and Lord, we pray that the seeds that were sown in their lives will grow and bear fruit in the weeks, months, and years to come. Lord, we pray that the songs that are stuck in their heads, that they just keep singing, that they will resonate and the truth that they are singing about will sink in deeply. And Lord, we also pray that you will bear fruit in the lives of the families of these children as well. And that these families, if they are not yet connected with a, a Christ-centered church, they will get connected, whether it's here at Freedens, whether it's at Open Door Bible Church, whether it's at another church, Lord, please help them get connected with uh, a church family, and ultimately, most importantly, with you. And Lord, now as we open the scripture together, we pray that you will be our teacher. Holy Spirit, we know that you inspired this word, and we pray that you will illuminate your word to us today as we come to a passage that is certainly intriguing, but at times is, is difficult to apply as well. Help us, Lord, to see how, um, how you have worked down through history and how you want to work in and through us today and in the rest of our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Esther chapter 2. Esther chapter 2. I have to say that personally I'm really enjoying the study of Esther. Um, I always learn a lot from sermon series as I'm preparing sermons. There are always a lot of things to learn from Scripture. But I'll say this one is one that has really drawn me in more than most sermon series just in terms of, of studying the book of Esther. It's so rich. There's so much there that I just kind of stand in awe of it. Of like, wow, I never knew that before. And uh, it's neat, too, to just draw in historical and cultural things that help illuminate what's going on here in the book of Esther. Uh, just let me remind us of where we've been uh, before we dive into our section for today. The book of Esther begins by focusing on King Xerxes. He is the king of the Persian Empire, and it focuses specifically on the six-month-long war council that King Xerxes is hosting. He's gathered leaders from throughout the Persian Empire in order to rally their support for an upcoming invasion that King Xerxes wants to launch against the nation of Greece. And at the end of the six-month war council, he hosts a very extravagant banquet, really in celebration, continuing to consolidate the support of all these leaders. And in this banquet, the king and all the men gathered there are drunk. And King Xerxes decides that he has a great idea. He wants his queen, Queen Vashti, to come in and to display her beauty for all these men. Now, she, on the other hand, does not think that's such a great idea. She says, no, I'm not coming. And King, King Xerxes does not like that response. He gets very angry. And so he, he really deposes the king. He, he says, he banishes her from his presence, says, you are no longer king. Or, um, she was never king. You are no longer queen. So, so there's no longer a queen. There's only the king. He is the supreme power there in the Persian Empire. And... Um, now, there's an interesting time frame um, that takes place between Esther chapters 1 and 2. Because there is time that passes. Remember, there's this war council in order to rally support for an invasion of Greece. In the time period between Esther's ch Esther chapters 1 and 2, this invasion was attempted, but it failed miserably. And King Xerxes, he was deeply humiliated. And the passage that we're looking at today comes in the wake 
of his humiliation. So I invite you to follow along. Esther chapter 2, we're going to start by reading verses 1 through 4. It says, Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered, remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of, the, of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. And let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. So what we see here is a process for choosing a new queen. Now a little bit of historical background here. King Xerxes loved sensuality. He loved sensuality. Uh, the historian Herodotus, who was writing just a few decades after the death of King Xerxes, he wrote about how during this time period, after the, king, the king's uh, very humiliating defeat at the hands of Greece, King Xerxes soothed his bruised ego by, by engaging in just a, a lot of womanizing, to put it lightly. Um, and he even fooled around with the wives of a number of his military officials, which didn't really make them very happy. But that's what he was on. He was on this power trip with a whole lot of women. So one of the king's personal attendants had this great idea. He said, you know what? What if we have a beauty contest? Let's gather a bunch of pretty young women from throughout the empire and then um, we'll gather them in, and the king can choose which one he wants to marry and to make the queen. Now, King Xerxes, loving this type of thing, uh, thought, this sounds great. He gets to sleep with a bunch of women. He gets to choose one to be the queen. So he's all for this idea. Now, this is very much like a modern-day version, or an ancient version of the TV show, The Bachelor. It is. If you're not familiar with The Bachelor, it's the show about one eligible man, and they gather 20 to 30 beautiful young women around him, and he, through the course of the show, gets to pick which one he likes the most. It's, it's really winnowing them down, eliminating some of them over the weeks, and at the end, he proposes marriage to the one that he likes the most. This is essentially what's taking place in Esther chapter 2. The king gets not just 20 or 30, he probably gets 100 or more beautiful young women gathered around him, and he gets to choose which one he's going to propose to and make the queen. Now let's move on in this passage to verses 5 through 7. Now there was a, in, in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shemai, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. Now, I want to point out three, uh, three details that come out of this as Mordecai and Esther are introduced for the first time. First of all, they have very deep Jewish roots. We see their ancestry here um, that, that 
It also points out the fact that, that their ancestors were part of the people who were carried off into exile when the Babylonian Empire invaded and conquered Judah. And so they have deep Jewish roots. And this is important because even though the book of Esther never mentions the name of God, it does mention the Jews many, many times. And these deep Jewish roots are important because the Jews were God's special chosen people. And we have to remember that even when we can't see God, he is there and he is active, which is very evident throughout this book. So they have deep Jewish roots. Secondly, Mordecai adopted Esther. Esther's parents died. And so Mordecai adopted her into his family and cared for her as his own daughter. And this continues a trend where, just like Moses, Esther was an adopted orphan whom God chose to work through in powerful ways to deliver his people to save them from deep harm. And so we see that they had deep Jewish roots. Mordecai adopted Esther. And thirdly, Esther is beautiful with a great body. Now, I think this is probably the first time I've ever said that any woman has a great body, except for my wife. And I'm saying it in a microphone in a church setting. But it is recorded. But it's also recorded right here in Scripture. Look with me to verse 7. This young woman, who is also known as Esther. Now, she does have these two different names. Hadassah is her Hebrew name. Esther is her Persian name. This young young woman named Esther had a lovely figure and was beautiful. So she had a lovely figure, which is a way of describing the way that her body looked. And it says that she was beautiful. Now, some people might want to spiritualize this and say, well, it's actually talking about how she's beautiful in spirit. Uh, It's really her inner character that is beautiful. That might be true of her, but that's not what this passage is saying because this word for beautiful here is talking about external appearances. It's talking about what you see with your eyes. And this is why another translation, the English Standard Version, which is a bit more literal, it says in verse 7 that she had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. Beautiful figure, lovely to look at. And this plays a big role in the story as we move on. So let's move on, verses 8 through 11. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day, he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. So this is a passage, a section of the passage that I titled, Welcome to the Harem. Now, I'm trying hard to keep this um, message as family-friendly as possible. So just keep that in mind as I'm describing these things. But you may be wondering, okay, what's a harem? I think it's important to describe uh, that, at least in general terms. A harem was a group of women whose purpose was to bring sensual pleasure to the king. That's the purpose of the harem. And many of these ancient kings had harems with hundreds and hundreds of women. Now, you may be thinking, among other things, 
how does one man even have time for all those women? And the truth is, he didn't. Many of these women, he would be with one or two times, and then he'd move on and never be with them again. But the thing is, once a woman is brought into the harem and has slept with the king, she cannot ever leave that harem. She is in there for the rest of her life. She cannot leave to marry anyone else. She cannot go back to her family. She is in the harem for life. And we see here that, that there's this gathering of new, beautiful young women to bring in to the harem. And this process is very different than the casting call for The Bachelor. I mean, just this week I was doing research on The Bachelor just to find pictures to put up there and to find a way to describe what The Bachelor is all about. And I came across these headlines about there's a casting call for The Bachelor down in Houston taking place just this last week. And there, every time there's this casting call, there are hundreds of young women who come to try to be on The Bachelor. They're voluntarily signing up. They're, they're, they're voluntarily auditioning to be on this TV show, The Bachelor. Now, it's, it's the same basic outcome, sort of, I guess, um, for The Bachelor and what's taking place in the Persian Empire where you get a bunch of women that are being chosen from by one man. But the process is so different because The Bachelor, it's voluntary. You know what? If you don't apply to be on The Bachelor, you will not be on The Bachelor. It's that simple. But here in the Persian Empire, you don't apply voluntarily to become a part of the harem, to become one of those beautiful women, young women who are chosen. There were scouts sent out throughout the empire in search of these beautiful young women. And if a young woman was chosen, she doesn't really have a huge choice. She was just brought in. Now, for us today, this sounds awful. It sounds like, how, how can something like that happen? We have to understand, that's what happens when you have a king who has absolute power. That that king can claim as his possession anything that belongs to anyone else, even their own body. And we may think, well, that's really sexist that he can just grab all these young women and take them out of their lives and, and force them to be in his harem for the rest of their life, whether they like it or not. It sounds really sexist. We have to understand the same thing happened for men as well. Herodotus, the ancient historian, wrote that every year the king's people gathered about 500 young boys, castrated them to make them eunuchs to serve the king. So it's not entirely sexist. It's just, it just shows what life is like in an empire like this where you have a king who can do whatever he wants. Last week we talked about the king's power and we see it on display right here. So they're gathering all these beautiful young women. Esther is one of the young women who is gathered. But we see here that she has an ally. Look with me to verses 8 and 9. It says, Esther was taken into the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem, and she pleased him and won his favor. So you have this man, Haggai. Um, it'd be interesting to have a conversation with him. You know, sometimes in our conversations we talk about, so, so what type of work do you do? That guy's job, look after 400 beautiful women, make sure that they're beautiful and sexy. Quite the job. You can see why the king made sure that he was a eunuch. Um, but, but that was his job. He's the head of all these women in the harem. And, he, and, and Esther, there's something about her that caught his attention, that she became 
his favor. He wanted to make sure that, that she would have the best chance to do well. So, so, so Esther had an ally in this process. We've been talking through this series about God's providence, about how God's providence says that God is working through ordinary circumstances, not necessarily through miracles, but just through circumstances, uh, conversations, people's actions. Um, he's working through them to accomplish his perfect purposes. And we can see that so far here in Esther chapter 2. One reason, I mean, you can see Mordecai adopting Esther, protecting her from the ravages of street life after her parents died. We can see God's providence in Esther's life because she is beautiful. Now, we have to understand that in many ways, physical beauty in our culture, as back then, is overrated. I mean, it's given far too much attention. It's superficial in so many ways. You think about 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, where it says that, that God doesn't look at the things that people look at. God doesn't look at the things that people look at. People look at the external appearance, appearance but God looks at the heart. So God looks at the heart, which is far more important. People look at the external appearance. Now, remember last week I quoted from David Foster Wallace, who's not a Christian, but he's pointing to a potential value of worshiping God because he says everything else you worship will eat you alive. One of the things he lists is if you worship your beauty or your body, he says if you worship your body or beauty or sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. So physical beauty, it's superficial. It's fleeting. It will not last. Yet in this circumstance, Esther's physical beauty was something that God worked through providentially to put her in a place where she would be in the right place at the right time to be God's instrument to, to deliver God's people. So we see God's providence in protecting Esther through Mordecai See God's providence and, and working through her beauty to get her to a place where she can protect God's people. And finally, we see God's providence in giving Esther an ally to help give her a leg up in the competition. I mean, because I would say that being queen in many ways would be better than just being stuck in the harem for the rest of her life. So we see that God, God is providentially working in Esther's life. But she is concealing a secret in all this as well. And the secret is found in verse 10. It says, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. She was Jewish. She was part of God's chosen people. But her cousin Mordecai said, no, you cannot tell anyone that you are a Jew. And I think he told her that out of a desire to protect her just in case someone found out about her Jewish background and used that against her. But she's keeping this a, a, a deep secret. She doesn't want anyone to find out that she is a Jew. And that plays a very relevant part later in her story. Now, I want to move on now in this passage um, to verses 12 through 18, which kind of conclude this section. It says, picking up in verse 12, Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to com complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women. Six months with oil of myrrh, and six months with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there 
and in the morning returned to another part of the harem to the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, who's the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, when it was time for her to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. So this section could be called One Night with the King. Now, I recognize that is the title of a popular movie, but it's very, very appropriate here because in verse 14 it describes a process. It says, in the evening, these women would go into the king's quarters, and in the morning, return to the harem. So one night with a king. And this is a very sensual audition. You really can't get around that. Why is, why is the woman going there at night? Why is she a part of the harem? There are a number, number of other um, indicators in here as well. It's a very sensual audition to become the queen. And in preparation for this audition, there would be a year-long beauty preparation with oils, with ointments, with, with various forms of, of, of makeup, and also uh, with food. What, the, what do they want to do with food? Well, they wanted to fatten up these women. Now, it shows how beauty is so subjective. It changes across cultures and across time. Because in that culture, a woman who was thin was not seen as beautiful. A woman had to put some meat on her bones in order to be seen as beautiful. And so they're giving these women special food. They're giving her special treatments to repair for the one night with the king. And then we see here that in verse 15, what happened was Esther's turn. And it says, when the turn came for Esther to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And so, so these women, they could take anything they want. They could dress any way they wanted. They, wanted, they could take any jewelry they wanted. They could take anything else, any oils, anything like that that would help with, um, with getting the king's interest. Um, they could take anything they wanted. Esther took only what Haggai recommended. And some people look at this and say, well, that's a sign of her restraint. It's a sign of her modesty. I don't think it's so much that. I think it's just a sign of her wisdom. Because Haggai was her ally. Haggai really, really liked her. And just kind of like you have a caddy in golf who wants to make sure that the golfer is in the right position to make a good shot. Or just like you have a coach in football or basketball who wants to call the right play to help the team and help the players succeed. So in the same way, Haggai is going to tell Esther what is going to be best to try to please the king, which he would, if anyone would know, he would know well what pleases the king. And so she takes what Haggai recommends, and we see that after all this buildup, Esther is chosen as the queen. Verse 17, the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. 
So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So this is essentially like a rags to riches type of story. Uh, Just a common girl, a Jewish girl at that, who's brought to be the queen of the most powerful empire in the world up to that point. It's like an ultimate Cinderella story, sort of, but with, with some twists along the way. And, and I think it's a relevant question here. I mean, we've, we've walked through the story of what's taking place in Esther chapter 2. How do we apply it? Because we're called to apply God's word to our lives. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 says that all scriptures God breathed is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So how do we apply this? I said early on in the first uh, message in this Esther series, the book of Esther is very complex and difficult to interpret and apply. It really is. Because one of the unique things about the book of Esther is that you don't see in there any analysis of the motives of the characters. Unlike most other books of Scripture, you don't see any assessments on, you know what, so-and-so did right in the eyes of the Lord. Or that, that response was sinful in the eyes of the Lord. You don't see any of that. All it is is a telling of the story. So, so how do we take it and apply it to our lives? Because we are not merely to be hearers of the word, we'll be doers of the word. So how do we apply Esther chapter 2? Well, let me say something that may make some people a little bit uncomfortable, but I think it's a reasonable conjecture here. That Esther is not a model to emulate, at least from Esther chapter 2. At least from Esther 2, she's not a model to emulate. I do recognize that for many people... Esther is a hero. And later on, she certainly plays a role of a hero. But here in Esther chapter 2, she is not a model that any of us should want to emulate. I mean, you look at what she's done here in Esther 2. She has hidden her identity as, as a Jew. She has slept with a man who is not her husband, who on top of that is an uncircumcised Gentile, which in that Jewish culture was a huge no-no. And then a step further, she married him. Which, again, was a big no-no for a Jew to marry a Gentile who didn't worship the one true God. And so you see these things, and they are blatant, um, blatant offenses against what God had clearly taught down through Old Testament history. God said many times in Old Testament, and then more recently in the New Testament, Be holy as I am holy. I think it's really hard to look at Esther chapter 2 and say, you know what? Yeah, she's certainly being holy in the way that she is living. To be holy means to be set apart. You look at what Esther is doing here. She gets to the position that she's getting to. She's getting this favor by choosing not to be set apart in the way that God's calling her to be set apart. She hides the fact that she is a Jew. She goes right along with what the empire is calling her to do. She blends right in. She does not rock the boat. And you compare her with others, because she's not the first person in biblical history, the first Jew to have a significant role in a pagan government. I think of just a couple generations earlier of Daniel. He is serving King Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian Empire. And and, I mean, it's similar type stuff. Special food to eat, special things they're supposed to do. Daniel and his three friends, rather than just going with the flow, they push back pretty hard. They take a stand and say, no, we want to live by our biblical beliefs. We're going to do that. And at one point, it even got them thrown into a lion's den because they refused to worship the one true God. Or, no, they refused to worship anyone but the one true God. And, and so we see there that they were willing to sacrifice themselves 
for the sake of faithfulness to God. They took a stand against the empire that was in charge at that point. You back up hundreds of years earlier, you have Joseph back in the book of Genesis. Joseph served in the government of Egypt. He was rising pretty fast. He was obeying God. At one point, Potiphar's wife wanted to go to bed with him. He said, no, I will not do that. He drew a line. He did not go with the flow. What did that earn him? He got thrown in jail. He got forgotten in jail for a long time. But that was the consequence of obedience to God. And then he got out of jail and he ended up rising even higher in the Egyptian government to the point where he was second in command just below Pharaoh. How did he get there? Not by bending the rules, not by just conforming to the, the ways of his society. He got there by being obedient to God. And then you look at Esther. Where is her obedience to God here? You know what, there's so much that the author leaves ambiguous. And so that makes it really hard to say, you know what, she's a role model to follow. Or, you know what, definitely don't follow her role model. It's hard to say because it's so ambiguous. But it's very clear that she is, to the best of our knowledge, just going with the flow here. And there's a significant contrast drawn between she and Queen Vashti. Remember back in, in, in chapter 1, verse 19, after Vashti was deposed from her queenship, the advisor says, let a search be made for a queen, a person, a woman who is better than Queen Vashti. How would this woman be better? It's not that she would be more beautiful because Vashti herself was very beautiful. It's not that she would be wiser because queens back then weren't sought for their wisdom. It was that she would be more compliant, that she'd be more willing to go with whatever the king wants. And this contrast is further drawn uh, here in chapter 2, verse 17, where it talks about the king setting a royal crown on Esther's head, making her queen instead of Vashti. Remember that when the king in his drunken state called Vashti to come perform for the men, part of the, the, the call was that she would wear her royal crown when she did that. She refused to put on that royal crown and come parade before the men. And now that same royal, royal crown that Vashti refused to wear is being put on Esther's head because she did conform more with what the king wanted. And so we see here that, that, that Esther is not a model to emulate here in, in chapter 2 at least. I mean, you think about, okay, how would you apply this to your teenage daughter? I mean, I think about my daughter is four years old right now, um, and at some point she's going to be much older. How would you apply Esther too to to helping your teenage daughter grow to be a godly, virtuous woman? (laughs) I I see something going up here um, with Bobby, who's who's doing a pretty good job um, and not applying Esther chapter two. But I mean, what would you tell a young girl if you were to apply Esther two to her life? Would you tell her, hey, make yourself as attractive as possible to powerful men? Would you tell her, hey, use your body to advance God's kingdom? Would you tell her, hey, you know what? It's fine to compromise yourself because then you'll be able to put yourself in a position to influence people after that. I I don't think so. Would you tell her, you know what? The means or the end justifies the means. As long as you get to a good spot, it doesn't really matter how you get there. I'll tell you, that's not the advice I'm going to give my daughter. 
Um, but that's, the, if you want to moralize, if you want to apply what you see Esther doing in chapter 2, that's essentially what you come up with. And so the point of Esther chapter 2 is not be like Esther. The point of Esther chapter 2 is that God is the hero who is at work behind the scenes to accomplish his purposes. It shows that God is sovereignly working even through messy situations to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. That God is faithful to his people. And that even through the circumstance that, you know what, is questionable at best, God is still sovereign and he is still at work. He is still at work. And this can give us hope even now in our, even in our country, in our situation. Because we, in many ways, are, are, if we are following Christ, we are like foreigners. We're like exiles in this country. When we look at what's going on in the country around us. There's much that can cause us concern. I and mean, we have terrorist attacks. We have politics that are messy and polarizing and, and stuff like that. We, we just look around and wonder, what's going to happen? If, we, if our hope is in what's going on in the nation around us, our hope is on a very frail foundation. But if our hope is in the kingdom of God... And if we're prioritizing the kingdom of God above whatever else is going on around us, then we have a secure hope because God is always going to be faithful to his people. And we see here in this passage that God redeems our messy lives. You know what? Esther, she got into some messy situations here. It was not her own doing. And we could, we could speculate about, you know, what, what were her motives here? We really aren't sure. But she was certainly in a messy situation. When she got older, maybe she would look back with regret and think, you know what, I, I should have stood up more for God. Maybe she would look back and say, you know what, I did the best I could. And she looks back with a relatively clear conscience. We don't really know. But we look at our lives and realize, you know what, our lives have messiness as well. We carry around baggage from the past. We recognize there are so many times where our motives are not as pure as they ought to be. There are so many times where we have a decision to make where there is not a clear-cut answer. That we want to look in Scripture and find, okay, God, should I marry this person? How should I handle this particular situation? How should I spend my time here? We want to know the answer to this, these questions. And the Bible gives us a lot of guidance, but there are still a lot of times where realistically, there's not a clear-cut answer. And there might even be a situation where there are downsides to any choice that we make, but we have to make a choice. So we make the best one that we can sometimes it doesn't always turn out even how we think it should. And there are those other times where we just blatantly rebel against God. But we can have hope that because of God's grace, because of God's sovereignty, even though that may be a weak link in the chain of our lives, that we look back on and think, you know what, I wish I would have done that differently. That we can trust that God is still weaving things together, that he is still working all things for the good of, the, of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. We can trust that because God redeems our messy lives. And just because we have messiness in our past or even in our present, it does not mean that we are disqualified from God working in and through us in the future. Because Esther is going to be in a special place at a special time to accomplish God's purposes. He used messy situation to get her there. And that doesn't justify sinful actions. It doesn't say, you know what, hey, it's fine for you to go out and do whatever you want because God will still accomplish his purposes. That's not what it's saying at all. But what it is saying is that even if you find yourself in a messy situation, even if you look back and have baggage in your past, you are by no means disqualified. Because I think it's 2 Corinthians 5.17 it says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. 
I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul says, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's quite a list of people who won't inherit the kingdom of God. He says, that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That is what you were. You've been transformed. You've been made new. I think as well, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. God transforms us from the inside out. So our call is to submit to him. Make the wisest decisions we can, but also when we recognize we have failed in various ways, whether in the past, present, or in the future, don't let those define us because God will redeem our messy situations and our messy lives. So the call is to follow him and to receive his grace in our lives because even though we all have messiness, through his redemption, through his sovereignty, he works that together to create a beautiful picture to accomplish his purposes. And we have the privilege that through faith in Christ, we can be brought in his family not necessarily as his king or queen, but as his son or his daughter. And what a privilege that is to be in the family of the king. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you once more that you love us so richly. Thank you that, that you have redeemed us through Christ, that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. And Father, I pray that we will receive your grace in our lives, that we will not beat ourselves up over past decisions, but that we will repent and that we will turn to you and receive the forgiveness and the new life that you have to offer us. Lord, we thank you that even through messy situations, like through Esther, like through so many other people down through history, like through us, that you still choose to work. You are faithful, Lord, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.